Hi, this Johnny Eccles from Love, and y'all be listening to Pathion Podcast. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by Pantheon Media. Guys, it's been kind of bothering me as I've been going through these episodes, um, you know, dropping down on all sorts of uh, flights of fancy and whims, things I find interesting. I kept thinking, I really got to go back to the roots. Obviously, you know by now, faithful listeners, that this is a show that is uh, so far all about heavy metal topics. We'll be doing some other stuff later, I'm sure. But what I wanted to do is look at the very origins of heavy metal just to cover that off. I just feel like um, we have to get the anchor episodes down so uh, so we can move forward in some sort of a structured way. Now, I haven't figured out quite how I'm going to do this yet, whether I'm going to break this into three episodes. Uh, right now, I'm going to talk about proto-metal. Um, you know, I rose, I, I, I made myself a challenge with this episode that I'm going to stop at 1967 um, because I'm thinking I may do another episode that looks at that 68, 69 sweet spot before we get into the, you know, the, the ultimate most important year, I think, in the invention of heavy metal, uh, 1970. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of material here. I mean, Basically, I I did a book called Who Invented Heavy Metal that ends in 1971 that's 120,000 words. So there's a lot of stuff that we can put in, and I I imagine there's just no way to, to do this whole thing justice. But I just wanted to kind of bring an episode that illustrates a little bit of the map, the long, long map leading up to... Uh, let's say, like I say, the end of 1967. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff I could have included in this, uh, in, in the book Who Invented Heavy Metal. By the way, all my books available from martinpopoff.com. I sign them and ship them out from here in the office. Um, but in that book, there's a lot of stuff going back to the walls of Jericho and, uh, and uh, Greek, you know, concerts in Greek times and French theater and uh, the birth of the blues, uh, the birth of the guitar, um, the birth of amplification. So there's a lot of different ways to look at the the, uh, the birth of heavy metal. But what I wanted to do with this episode was not get too crazy and uh, and basically pick some songs, five songs, of course, this is the history, uh, history and five songs, um, that illustrate, you know, the ramp up towards, uh, like I say, the end of 1967. So, y'all ready to go? Let's, uh, let's do this. So, okay, the first song I'm going to pick in the, in the, you know, the history in five songs of the actual history of heavy metal going right back to the beginning is... Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio with their rendition of Train Kept a Rollin'. Have a listen. (laughs) 
right, guys, what did you think of that? I mean, obviously, we're not talking real heavy metal here, but um, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read you the entry. I, you know, this book that I did was timeline in quotes, uh, so I'm just gonna read you the entry because I find this sums up all the all the thoughts I have about this song. Okay, so July 2nd, 1956. Memphis, Tennessee's Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio terrifically track at Bradley Film and Recording Studio in Nashville, a version of Tiny Bradshaw's 1951 classic, The Train Kept a Rollin'. Putting irrelevance upon the debate over first rock and roll song, we will somewhat facetiously declare it the world's first heavy metal song, containing electric guitar licks, chugging, machine gun propulsion, a driving 4-4 beat kept bluesy only by the walking bass line, distortion, menace, histrionic vocals to the point of tortured screams, reverb on the vocals, and repeating three-note minor key signature not part of the original. It ends with a prescient power chord. Not only would the Yardbirds and Aerosmith make the track famous again in two different later generations, but Led Zeppelin, as the Yardbirds and later as Led Zeppelin, would open their shows with the song in 68 and 69. So there's a lot to pack in there. Um, a lot of cool points. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, this is this is being a little cheeky, picking something as early as 1956. But I will boldly go there and say, Train Kept a Rollin' by Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio, first heavy metal song of all time. Okay, moving on. I, you know, there's a, like I say, there's a lot of stuff I left out of the 50s. In this book I did, there's got to be... 20 different, uh, you know, touchdown points in the 50s that I picked, you know, Link Ray, uh, Eddie Cochran, uh, Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry. There's a, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of like cool little touchstones of heavy metal that begin in the 1950s. Okay. But I wanted to move on and pick something totally different than original rock and roll, i.e. sped up blues. So number two, let's take a listen. This is Dick Dale and his Deltones with Miserloo Twist. Okay. I actually went on the internet and looked up how to pronounce Mr. Lou. So um, I, I hope I did that fairly, uh, fairly confidently there. I've never known how to say that. Anyways, I'm again, just gonna, gonna kind of tell you the, the entry that I had in my book about this because it does take in the points. 1962, Dick Dale rips his celebrated sinister sounding guitar licks on Mr. Lou Twist from Surfer's Choice, the debut record from Dick Dale and his Deltones, on which we also hear distortion and aggressive vocals. Dale would pioneer many future heavy metal characteristics, including use of Eastern scales. Mr. Lou is, in fact, of Greek origin, dating back to 1927. Quick picking of and through scales, reverb, plus increased intensification of distortion and amplification, working closely with Fender to come up with the first 100 watt amplifier. I have a quote uh, from Randy Holden, Blue Cheer. He told me this is this is his little story about Dick Dale, 
who's sadly no longer with us. Uh, you know, and obviously he he toured all over the place. He basically lived on this idea, you know, of being the grandfather of heavy metal. That might be taking it a little bit too far, um, but you know, the guy had to make a living. The poor guy. I mean, he had a lot of health problems all through his life, and this, you know, playing live till till the end basically was his way of paying for his medical expenses. Um, so, Randy Holden told me, Dick Dale came out, out on tour in Baltimore and I had the only Fender dual showman on the East Coast, which was the biggest amp at the time. And when we played with Dick Dale at a gig one night, I didn't know who he was, but I thought it was really interesting what he did. He had a Fender dual showman and he was doing this loud staccato guitar. I thought it was great. Dick Dale was awesome, a very potent force in heavy music. I mean, it just came to him naturally. And his melodies, I think, that was the real interesting part. He's of Middle Eastern descent, Lebanese, so you can imagine the influence of the melodic structure that comes from. So the staccato picking would have come from way back when. So when it washed up on the shores of this country and Dick Dale found electric guitar, he was just translating what his genetics heard that he was doing with a lot of electric guitars. Then we kept running into each other way back then. It was really weird. He stole my amp the first time at that gig. They didn't know. They just put it in. They thought nobody else had any of that. They just loaded it up on their tour bus. And I saw my amp going and I'm like, where's my amp? I went out on the bus said, oh, there it is. That's mine give it back you know and he brings up an interesting point i mean this this whole thing about those middle eastern modalities obviously that's something that gets picked up by jimmy page and he brings into led zeppelin and it's a famous heavy metal trope that gets picked up by richie blackmore uh you know there's a little bit of that in deep purple but there's a lot more of it in rainbow especially you know rising and long live rock and roll albums uh and it becomes a big part <clears throat> of heavy metal it becomes another way that heavy metal moves away from the blues and uses these other things, Middle Eastern tones, but also classical music. So, you know, I have this, uh, you know, semi-famous thing that I say that heavy metal begins when the blues is stripped out of it. You know, that's a contentious thing because British blues boom leads into Led Zeppelin, on and on and on. But I think real heavy metal begins when, when you basically don't hear very much blues uh, in any of this music and that's that's something again contentiously that I say about Black Sabbath I think there's practically no blues in Black Sabbath Tony Iommi would disagree with me but there you go anyway that was number two let's take a short break we will be right back when we dropped the first few episodes of Rock and Roll Archaeology into the feed three and a half years ago little did we know that this telling of rock and roll history would become a pantheon of rock and roll podcasts since many of you first joined us on our rock and roll exploration, the halls of the rock and roll pantheon have filled with shows like Deeper Digs in Rock, Rock and Roll Librarian, Muses, Art of Rock with Caution Friends, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, Vinyl Snob, and more. We are proud of this one-of-a-kind approach to an audio magazine of high-quality shows. That is Pantheon, and thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you, our diggers who listen to all of our shows. And now, we are excited to let you know that every show available as part of Pantheon can be found in their own podcast feed to subscribe to in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows you've come to love. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our Pantheon of Rock and Roll and find them all at PantheonPodcast.com. Keep up the rockin'. 
Okay, glad to have you back here on History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Uh, moving on to number three. Again, we've skipped certain things through the uh, through the 60s so far. We're still in the early 60s. You know, the Beatles have a lot of cool things that they've done. They, they pioneered feedback. They pioneered, you know, distortion. They pioneered extreme vocals, you know, coming from Little Richard. You know, you listen you listen to a lot of things John Lennon and Paul McCartney were doing. They, they have some pretty major screams. And, of course, later on... Uh, um, they do Helter Skelter. They basically dabble in heavy metal and do a great job of it in 1968 on the White Album. Um, but uh, going back to the early 60s, uh, you know, one that you can't leave out of this discussion is The Kinks with You Really Got Me. Um, let's take a listen. Girl, you really got me now. You got me so I can't sleep at night. Okay, so there you hear a, a great riff. The whole idea is we've got riff and distortion, but uh, I said it much more eloquently in Who Invented Heavy Metal? August 4th, 1964, the Kinks release, You Really Got Me, a seminal early song framed by overt use of power chords, albeit with an echo of blues patterning. Quickly, it is Dave Davies as well as Keith Richards who are popularizing fuzz applied to the guitar. Keith is another one who is, you know, we, we drop down on the stones throughout this book, but Painted Black is like a like a cool, doomy riff. Um, satisfaction is one of the very first riffs. And, uh, and uh, you know, Satisfaction is, is a place where, you know, you really see the pioneering of distortion. Uh, okay, who are popu popularizing fuzz applied to the guitar. For this song, Davies plugged the doctored amp into a Vox AC30 to record. Heavy Metal's premier organist John Lord is cited as playing the piano on this track, recorded at IBC in London, although some say it is Arthur Greenslade providing the part. Consensus straight from the recollections of Shell Tell Me is that Jimmy Page played neither guitar or tambourine on the track, but he played a bit of both on the full-length album. Now, here's a quote, Dave Davies, I talked to him about this. He said, when I was young, I used to listen to records and just listen to the guitar work. I used to listen to James Burton. I used to listen to Scotty Moore. I loved John Lee Hooker. I liked Howlin' Wolf. Even before that, I was a big fan of The Ventures. And I used to like The Ventures rhythm guitar playing. And if you listen to it, it's kind of like bar chords. They don't really play the whole chord, and I used to copy that. So it was a combination of different influences, coupled with my frustrations of not being able to get the sound out of an amplifier. Because the amplifiers in those days were very clean-cut sounding, and I wasn't very happy with that. So coupled with a variety of influences and my own sort of aggression about how I wanted a guitar to sound, I got an amplifier and I just cut the speaker with a razor blade. And I came out with this raunchy sound and that was the sound I liked, which was used on You Really Got Me, which oddly has got one of my favorite solos because I didn't really know what the hell I was doing at the time. Just a little added note, Black Sabbath drummer Bill Ward <coughs> from the band who is hands down the inventors of heavy metal. He says, you had Cream, The Who, but also The Kinks, which Ozzy points out very, very well. When Dave Davies played You Really Got Me on that burnt out amp, man, I tell you what that sound, it was like, oh my God, what is that sound? That sound was great and it just lands. It just puts itself to that really rough edge. I love the poetic abstract way that Bill Ward talks. He's, he's a pretty, pretty cool guy. He's a really cool guy. He's one of my favorite interviews ever. Talked to him many times. Um, but 
so there is this song there's all day and all of the night you know which is almost like the sister song to this idea but yeah you have this idea of of riff in a pure unadulterated way uh something brand new okay moving on in our history in five songs of proto metal proto of course meaning before metal and like i say i may do another episode that looks at the late 60s before we get into the key year 1970 but let's go back uh number four we've got jimmy hendrix experience with purple haze take a listen <laughs> All right, so March 17th, 1967, Jimi Hendrix Experiences Purple Haze is issued as a UK single recorded January 11th and February 3rd at Delane Lee uh, and Olympic Studios in London, UK. At a considerably raised threshold from earlier arguments, Plumping for the Train Kept a Rollin' is the first heavy metal song. Frankly, going that far back represents a stretch, exclamation mark I put. Much argument can be made for this track deserving that trophy very very key i i really think this is probably the number one most important song of the entire 60s for heavy metal a marked difference and advancement has occurred from the fuzzy garage rock that has come before and indeed many of the tropes of histrionic heavy metal guitar are on display here right here so at a higher threshold which we must necessarily rise to as we advance through the years purple haze can be posited as one version of ground zero for the invention of heavy metal at least within the language of a single song this brings up a point. Usually when I have this discussion with people, I like to point to full albums uh, because I think the album shows a, uh, a lack of randomness, accidentalness, um, non-committal, um, stumbling upon something. To me, an album really means you meant it. Um, and that's why, you know, to give it away of a future episode, we're obviously going to be talking about Black Sabbath's first album, Black Sabbath. February, Friday the 13th, 1970. Um, okay, so as I go on here, ironically, one could say that the song competes with only one of two earlier experience tracks. One is Stone Free, issued three months earlier, lighter yet still quite rocky, but again earlier. Additionally, B-Side of Purple Haze, 51st anniversary, is in possession of a hard rock written structure, but the lack of bite to the guitar and the meekness of the recording lessens its impact to the overall story. So just a few other words about Purple Haze. Um, you know, people forget there's a part later on in the track that that completely moves away from anything bluesy and they just rock out completely. That's kind of that solo, solo section. But and yeah, that opening riff has nothing to do with the blues and it's just nutty, crazy heavy metal. The playing by everybody, Noel Redding, Mitch Mitchell, everything's heavy on this. Um, it does have a little bit of a blues structure to it, the way it moves through the chord change and changes and that it has that stopping uh, part, you know. Uh, excuse me while I kiss the sky um, this, so there's there's a little bit of a hint of a bluesy thing in here as you know I did an early episode uh, on the origins of what I called a particularly American heavy metal and I posited this idea that you could take an AB switch and uh, and cite the invention of heavy metal uh, watching it in action as you flip back and forth between the blues and something new the blues and something new blues and something new I talked about 
Ted Nugent, Cat Scratch Fever, Rock the Nation, uh, Kiss Strutter. Um, Kiss had a ton of songs in this department. So Purple Haze kind of fits in that department a little bit as well. All right, enough about that. Moving on. Number five in our history, in five songs of the history of proto-metal, we have Cream with Sunshine of Your Love. Here we go. Okay, as I wrote in Who Invented Heavy Metal, November 1967, Cream's Disraeli Gears is released, which contains Tales of Brave Ulysses and Sunshine of Your Love, the latter of which was tribal, doomy, racked with power chords, feedback, and bashing drums. Billboard compliments the band on selling so many albums without a single, calling their sound wall-to-wall rock tinged with blues and flower lyrics. So it's funny. I, I love this whole idea. Maybe we'll even have a future episode on the origin of the term heavy metal. But I like this wall-to-wall rock. Okay, so there you go. That's kind of heavy metal. Just lots of volume, lots of amplification. Of course, cream is important in the in the history of amplification as well. Um, uh, tinged with blues. Okay, so there you have. It's got blues, but it seems to be moving away from the blues, which is a good thing in terms of a modernization and flower lyrics. Well, that has really nothing to do with our discussion. Jack Bruce told me once, um, I loved meeting this guy, it was so cool, it was a great chance meeting, a cool little interview we had um, backstage at Massey Hall here in Toronto, uh, on Sunshine of Your Love. He says, Pete Brown, who is my lyricist and myself, we always uh, had to write the songs for the albums very quickly because we never had much time. So we were trying to write some stuff, and we had been up all night and weren't really coming up with anything, and we were in my flat in London, and I just picked up my double bass and played the riff, the line of Sunshine of Your Love, he sings it, and Pete looks out the window and he wrote, It's Getting Near Dawn. Just like that. I think that's probably the best record we did. It was the one that got us the attention in the States. It was the first thing we recorded at Atlantic Studios with Tommy Dowd. There were a lot of good people around. We had a blast doing it. Uh, and just as an added note, uh, Stooges drummer, I, I like this because Stooges are also super important and somebody we would talk about have, a, have you know, if I go down the route of doing a middle episode on this birth of heavy metal proper thing. Uh, so Stooges uh, would be in that one, of course. Stooges drummer Scott Ashton, no longer with us. He says, depending on what you say a heavy metal sound is, if you're going towards heavy metal, I would say the big inspirational drummer for heavy metal had to be Ginger Breaker, ba- Baker, the drummer for The Cream, because he started his drum solo thing with the double bass drums and everything. Every drummer in the world wanted to do it. So there you go. Cream were a huge influence, of course, through the guitar hero Eric is God of Eric Clapton. Um, you know, through through the thundering power trio sound that they came up with, where you know their egos were such that they were one-upping themselves all the time, and they were known to be a really loud band. And of course, you know, Jimmy, of course, is in there with all the pyrotechnics. We got the Kinks with the first riff. We've got Johnny Burnett trio with with the probably what did I say? There are a dozen different cool little heavy metal things about that. 
Uh, we've got Dick Dale with the sinister fast guitar picking. Um, you know, he's he's kind of um, you you could almost say that he's kind of uh, the link in all of this, the the closest link to thrash when it comes to one of the big characteristics of thrash, which is which is that palm muted quick machine gun type ripping. All right, so there you go. Uh, let's conclude this episode right there. This has been History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Tell me what you think. You know, shoot me some other show ideas. I would love to hear what you think. You can uh, you can email me at martinp at inforamp.net. If you forget that, you can go to my site, martinpopoff.com. That's where I've got all my books for sale. I've got 83 books uh, or so. Um, 40 or 50 of them are in print. I sign them and sell them uh, out of this office. Um, but my email address is there as well. I'm pretty good at Facebooking, um, so you can Facebook me with ideas or comments on this show. I would love to uh, to chat about what we've been doing here. Um, so that's it for now. Sayonara. Um, we shall uh, see you next time. Bye. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.